Hello guys, welcome back to Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks. This is episode 19 and today I've got the very lovely principal of Redfern Judgment College, Matt Smith is here. I got him talking about what it's like to be in leadership at such an interesting school, how to push back on parental expectations that can sometimes be unrealistic, and of course, why trauma-enforced practice is such a key element of teaching at Jarjum College. Have a listen and let me know what you think. (laughs) All good, all good. Um, Yeah, so how are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Um, Yeah, we finish up next Tuesday, so I'm... I'm super pumped, counting down to when it all finishes. We can have oh, a break. Exciting. exciting. <laughs> yeah. Are you going away? Um, yeah, we, we, some of the staff were going to Adelaide for three days for a, like a retreat. Oh, um, lovely. Yeah, so that would be nice. Um, and then after that I'm just going to chill at home and, um, yeah, spend as much time with the, the family as I can. So, yeah, oh, lovely. No, nothing, too, nothing too crazy. Now, when you say a retreat, is it actually going to be like meditation, fully peaceful, relaxing, <laughs> or are you guys just getting on it for three days? Uh, well, we're, we're, it's it'll be a combination. Like we're, um, <laughs> it's actually at a winery, um, <laughs> right. so we'll so we'll get on it a bit. Um, but yeah, we are gonna we are gonna actually do some um, it's like team building and reflection and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice, really peaceful place out in the Adelaide Hills. Um, Gorgeous. And yeah, it's long term here, so everyone's pretty rattled. So it's time for time for a break. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I've heard yeah. that nobody drinks like teachers, and I can definitely vouch for that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll put my hand up as well. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so if you don't mind, maybe we could start with a bit of an overview of who you are. Um, Tell me a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I've I've been teaching twenty two years now, um, mm-hmm. and I started I started out in the western suburbs. Like my background is as a high school teacher. Right. Um, so my my first job was out in in Blacktown at a, a Catholic high school, um, and I was teaching history and English. Um, at the t- oh, actually, wasn't a very good teacher when I started. So really, it, um, what makes you say that? Oh, I just I can ref- I can look back at at how I was. Um, like I've always been good with relationships. That that part of my my game's strong. But like when I think about my classroom skills at the start of my career, um, mm. like the technical part of being a teacher, I, I've. I know I wasn't very good at it. Like I can think, I can reflect back on it now and see that. At the time, I thought I was, I was awesome. But um, yeah, when I look back now, uh, <laughs> I, know, I know that's not true. Um, yeah, but I, I had a lot of good people help me out. So um, yeah, so I, I did yeah. four years out at Blacktown, um, and then moved up the north coast for for a couple of years into Port Macquarie. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, then, then I went to Riverview. So I was at a, I went from like sort of pretty small Catholic schools to um, a really big independent boarding school. Um, wow. Yeah. So and, and spent a lot of my a lot of my career there, thirteen years, I think, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And was that and, a bit of a and, learning curve for you in terms of kind of um, relating to a lot more staff and a lot more kids or did you find that you kind of settled in quite well? 
Yeah, I actually found it a little bit tough to um, transition into that school. And mm. I, I at first I didn't really want to go to a school like that. I, like I didn't grow up knowing much about big fee independent schools. And yeah. I remember my friend who was working there at the time said, oh, there's an English teaching job going, you should apply. And I, I remember saying to him, I'd, I, mean, I don't want to go and work at a school for rich kids. And, um, mm. and he said, no, it's not like that. Like it's, you know. Kids are kids. Like all the kids need good teachers. So um, yeah, I went there, and and he was right. Like uh, you know, that was my own prejudice. Um, yeah. But it was actually a fantastic school, and um, it did take some adjustment. The kids used to tease me when I started about having a Western Sydney accent, which really? I, I don't think I have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so, you have. Yeah. Mind you, I'm not from here, so I don't pick up yeah, accents very right. well. You, you've got an accent, Katie, just for the record. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I did either, but um, they used to give me a hard time about it. Maybe I spent long enough there that I lost it. Um, Maybe. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was a really good school. Like I, I got lots of different opportunities there um, mm-hmm. and I, I never really planned to go into leadership, but I did a bit of work in um, yeah, in the, the boarding school. Um, I lived on the school site um, supervising boarders for a while and um, I became a year coordinator and um, mm. then I, I did some work running the professional learning program at the school. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then at one point the, there was a vacancy as the head of the primary school and the um, – like I'm not a primary school teacher, right? I'm a my, – all my training and experience was as a high school teacher, but I just kind of thought, you know, that might be something good for me to learn and I felt like I could contribute and – yeah. Um, yeah. So I ended up leading the primary school for four years there, and yeah, that was that wow. was really cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. What did you learn from? Like, what did you get out of the primary side of stuff that you were kind of able to, um, I guess, add on to your secondary training and um, leadership with? If that makes sense. Um, yeah. One of the main things was about like managing student behaviours. Like, mm. and, and they weren't bad kids, but you know, younger kids behave in a different way. It yeah. took me a long time to to get used to that. Um, but also, parents like you know, <laughs> primary school parents have a, a totally different attitude to the the experience of their kids at school to high school parents. Mm. So that was a bit of a, a learning curve for me. Uh, and I, I've, I've got my own kids, so I was able to. Um, sort of apply some of my uh, own experience as a parent to that but yeah um yeah that that was a that was a learning curve and i think one of the things that i was able to do that i was able to kind of bring to that role was um a different approach to dealing with parents and i, mm. I think that actually uh, is one of the things i contributed to working in the primary school was that i was able to maybe challenge um the parents a little bit and to to push back on some parental expectations that might have been a bit unreasonable yeah Um, I think that's actually quite an important um I guess quality in a school leader because at the end of the the day your staff are looking at you to lead them stick up for them and make sure kind of you're displaying those um values and leadership skills that um I guess highlight the importance of educators right and if you've got a leader that's always siding with the parents or not sticking up for your staff that's when you kind of get those um 
I mean, it, it kind of reflects on the culture of the staff room then, doesn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. And mm. I, I remember when I when first started at, um, at that school, the principal um, supported me one day, you know, a really difficult um, conversation with a parent. And I, I remember how empowered I felt knowing that I had his total support, like mm-hmm. that he just completely trusted my professionalism. And yeah. so that's something that I've kind of, since I became a principal, have, have tried to adopt. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like when, you, when you're a teacher and especially when you're a young teacher and you're faced with um, an angry parent or a disgruntled oh, parent. terrifying, it, yeah. It, it's really disarming. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's important to, to feel like you've got that support. And it doesn't, it's not to say teachers are always right. Sometimes the, um, the parent's got a p- good point, so you have to be able to trust your professionalism and, and be a good listener and um, – but, but also, you know, stand on your principles. I think that's important. Absolutely. So 13 years at Riverview, four years as head of primary. Um, yep. And did you then come over to where you are now at Jarjum College? Yeah. So I was actually on a student leadership camp with the kids from Riverview. And um, Riverview is a Jesuit school and, and so is Jarjum. So mm-hmm. the schools had a relationship, but I had never visited Jarjum. I'd never, I didn't really know much about it. But we were on a student leadership camp and some of the Jarjum kids were there and I had yeah. some of the review boys there and we were, I, I just got chatting to these girls from Redfern and, and they were telling me that their principal was leaving and they will tell me a bit about their school. And at that time I, I was looking for something new. Like I was looking for a new challenge. Like I, mm-hmm. I never intended to stay that long at review. So as much as it was a fantastic school, that's part of the reason I stayed so long because I kept getting yeah. opportunities there. But when these kids were telling me about their school at Redfern and it just sounded so unique and so challenging and I kept I kept thinking, I reckon I can make a difference there. I reckon I can do something. So, yeah, I, and I, I took a bit of a risk and, and ended up here and it's um, it's totally different to anything I've ever experienced <laughs> in my life. Yeah, it's a really unique place, Jarjum. I was very lucky to be able to come and visit you guys. But from your point of view, tell me, tell me what it is that keeps you going back and keeps you excited for every week there. What is it about Jarjum that's so amazing? So, so Jarjum is um, we're a little independent primary school, and we've we've only got twenty two students enrolled, and we're for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. So the, the community we serve tends to be kids who have struggled to engage with mainstream education. So mm. for whatever reason, they faced barriers that have made it difficult for them to um, be successful in a mainstream school. So mm-hmm. uh, they come here and they get really intensive support in an attempt to take some of those barriers away. So... Um, and, and when I started, it was I found it really difficult. Like honestly, the first term, I I went to the I went to the Woolpack Hotel down down the road yeah. every afternoon after school, and thinking, what have I done? Like, what what decision have I made? What have I done to my life? And yeah, um, it was I found it really difficult. But uh, over time, as as I've earned some trust from the community and the kids and their families have come to trust me. We've actually been able to to make a lot of ground here. Um, yeah. But the, the thing, like in answer to your question, Katie, the thing that has me coming back is I, I can just see so much 
untapped potential in these kids that mm-hmm. um, like the barriers in their life have really held them back from achieving what they're capable of. So it just feels like there's, there's so much potential. And every day you want to come back and, and see um, kids achieving that next step in their learning or, you know, developing more self-regulation skills or learning yeah. better relationships or how to trust. And, uh, yeah, so it's just like it's totally rewarding. Yeah, it is an absolutely amazing place to be. Like just walking around um, there when I was there last week, it, it felt so familial almost like you can tell that it's built on a community and it's you've got such strong community connections there but even as a visitor going in and chatting to the staff and chatting to your lovely deputy principal as well like it just it feels so welcoming um and for the kids it must be an amazing place to be every day yeah and and that's that's really deliberate so yeah. Like we've got 22 kids and 15 staff, right? So the kids mm. get a really close level of care. Um, but a lot of these kids and their families, they their experience of educational institutions is really negative. So they might have started at another school and gone through kindergarten and year one, their attendance fell off, their behaviour was problematic, and then they either got kicked out of the school or, you know, they stopped attending because of they're feeling a sense of shame or, or failure. Mm. Um, so we we have to really challenge that here and and make the kids feel secure and at home and like you know the the I think one of the key things is the meals like because we provide all the meals for the kids here there's a real yeah. sense of like eating as a family it's that yeah. communal meal experience it, mm. and you see the kids sitting around the table and and chatting and talking about you know their interests and what they're going to do and so th- that's really deliberate trying to build that sense of family and our families feel welcome here for the most part that's they amazing. they engage here really well yeah yeah and attendance wise do you get a lot of do you get most of the students staying on to finish their primary schooling with you guys yeah we we do now uh, when the school was first found and it's only a new school like it was only founded in 2013 so it's still right. still pretty fresh in redfern um, and initially the, the idea was that you would bring kids in who are struggling in mainstream schools, get them up to a, a point where they could function in mainstream schools again, and then you'd push them back out. But what yeah. we found is that, that that having all those transitions is actually really disruptive for the kids. So when it gets to a point that we feel that they would benefit from being here, we try to carry them all the way through. So mm. we've had, um, like we, we graduate our kids out at year six, and then move them on into high schools that they want to go to. and um, So they, they do tend to stay here. And they've actually been asking us, like they, we've got four kids who are supposed to graduate at the end of this year and they keep saying, mm-hmm. oh, Matt, can you, can you start a high school? Can't we do year seven and eight here? And, oh, bless. <laughs> like, yeah. So like, we'd love to, guys, but we're a tiny little building. Like, but, you know, maybe down the track that's something we, we'll, we'd look at doing. Yeah. Yeah, well, fingers crossed because you guys are doing such an amazing job with the primary side of stuff. I think, you know, going into that secondary space would not would be amazing as well and it would be so supportive because yeah. it's such a great resource for that community. Um, what are your relationships like with um, your feeder schools, like the, the secondary schools that your kids tend to go to? Well, we have we have good relationships with the other schools around. We, we yeah. try to... Um, 
like really foster those because when, when our kids leave here, we want them to go to a school where they, they feel like someone already knows them, they've already got a foot in the door. Um, mm. But like we're, we're an independent school, right? So a lot of our kids could go off to their local public school and some of them choose to do that. But then they're a bit limited in drawing area and, and which school they go to. Mm. So w- we try to support the parents when they they decide, you know, they might have a particular preference. So if they say we'd really like our daughter to go to a boarding school or we'd really mm. like our daughter to go to this particular school because they of their support pro- program, like we, we try to fundraise for that so we can cover the school fees for them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so th- those schools where we know our kids will go, Mm. we build a relationship over a couple of years. So we've got we've got kids from other high schools who come here on Thursdays and have community lunch with us and join in our culture lessons so that, you know, when a, when a boy or girl goes to that high school, they already know someone there. Yeah, amazing. I want to come back to the culture because I've got um, a couple of questions on that, but are you comfortable yeah. talking about the funding a little bit? Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay. Um, I'm actually really glad you mentioned the funding because I remember chatting to you about this a little bit um, when we first met. But I wonder if you would be able to take me through, take the listeners through um, the challenges of um, funding at a small independent school. Yeah, so the most of our funding comes through the Gonski 2.0 model, which is basically um, each of the kids is awarded a loading based on their needs. So our our students attract the loading because they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, mm-hmm. and most of our students here also have um, either a diagnosed or imputed disability, which um, also attracts a loading. Yeah. So that's that's how we get most of our funding. That, that covers about seventy percent, and it comes right. through the federal and state governments. But um, we we actually provide more services than sort of an average school would. So we we like have our own pediatrician. We do all the meals, we run buses to the door, give the kids a uniform, stuff like that. So, and, and like I said, we've got 22 kids and 15 staff. So mm-hmm. in order to, like, be able to provide that intensive support, we do a lot of private fundraising as well. So we, um, we have uh, usually a, a shortfall of about 350 to 400 grand each year, which we have wow. to fundraise privately, yeah. That is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's, it's it's not one of the skills I learnt at uni. I'll, no, I'll so, wasn't so part I, of the course. I, no, no, I don't remember studying that at uni. So I I, I do spend a lot of time um, convincing people of uh, why it's a good investment of their philanthropy and philanthropic dollars to um, yeah. to give to us so that we can support the families. And like I genuinely, the thing that makes that easy, Katie, is that I actually believe we're we are really doing good work with these kids yeah. and that investing, if people have the money and they want to invest it in, in um, charity, it's a, like we're a good place to invest that because I, I know, you know, we are paying for those kids to see the doctor or to get um, their eyesight and hearing treated or to get yeah. a uniform, to have breakfast every day. So, yeah. Yeah. people that don't live in New South Wales don't really know the Redfern community. Do you want to give us a little bit of a a very brief overview of what that's like and what some of the challenges are within that community? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So Redfern has traditionally been um, a centre of Aboriginal activism in Australia and mm-hmm. uh, a lot, lot of different um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people moved and settled in Redfern after being dispersed all over the place. So um, even though we're on Gadigal land here, a lot of the the local Aboriginal people, uh, they might be from Ewan Nation or Bunjalung or Wiradjuri, they're all over the place. So it's a really mm-hmm. uh, diverse mix of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who live here. And there's a centre of services. So there's an Aboriginal, Aboriginal medical service, um, there's employment services. So a lot of Aboriginal people who um, live in Sydney, Redfern will be um, a bit of a hub for them. Um, mm. th- there's also in the area a combination of social housing. So there's a number of social housing towers around here um, and you get that mix of like really acute disadvantage and then, you know, there's $4 million terraces <laughs> right yeah. next door. So, you know. Hashtag Sydney prices. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so it's really mixed. It's a really, really diverse place but mm. a, a really important place for Aboriginal people. Yeah, and having that mix of different cultures and backgrounds within your student body must be quite a challenge as well. Like how do you approach being able to celebrate each of those cultures and provide opportunities for those kids to learn about their um, their cultures and their personal backgrounds? Yeah, that's that's it's actually really challenging. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, like as a non-Aboriginal person myself, like I, I'm really dependent on the the kids' families and yeah. on our Indigenous staff here. So we're, we're lucky that in our 15 staff, we've got five um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff. So they're able to sort of bring some of their personal experience into teaching culture. Um, yeah. But, but also like we try to ask the kids what they want to learn. Like if – we, we had a couple of kids, we've still got a couple of kids who um, they're from the Gambangu Nation and, and they wanted to learn some Gambangu language. So one of our staff organised a series of Zoom meetups with a Gambangu language teacher up the wow. North Coast. So, yeah. yeah, they were able to do sort of a four-week intensive language course that way. Um, wow, So that's we, we really try and just, yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Um, and it was nice that that's something the kids said, oh, we just want to learn language. So we were able to facilitate that. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. amazing. Now, obviously, uh, Jarjum is a an independent school. It's very, very different from the traditional types of schooling that teachers that are listening to this might be used to. And obviously for you, it was a huge step away from um, traditional education model at Riverview. Um, so... How do you, as a school leader, decide on what's important in education? Like, how do you get that balance between what people are telling you should be done in a classroom and what you know that your student body needs? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, Katie. And, and <laughs> look, I, I don't know that I necessarily get this right all the time, but yeah. we do try to include... Um, student voice so we do ask the kids what do you what do you want to learn and Mm. like honestly the primary curriculum is flexible enough that you can include student preferences in it yeah Um, but we've also got like really good experienced teachers here who you know they work so closely with the kids Mm. that 
we can kind of identify the holes in their in their learning and their their point of need really clearly, mm-hmm. and that helps us to set an individual program for each kid. So, like every morning, we've got a we've got a literacy program, and usually the the kids are it, it's no more than sort of two or three kids working with a teacher during that literacy session of the day. So yeah. we find that our our literacy growth is really fast. Like our kids are learning to read and write, mm-hmm. you know, well ahead of their, their peers and uh, well ahead of what they might in a mainstream school just because of yeah. how close the attention is. So really it's just working with each kid individually, trying to identify mm-hmm. what you think they need and, you know, we find we can um, adapt the curriculum enough to make it work. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, that's great. Um, what is it that... I guess the online community, the podcast community, like what can we do to um, help judge them out? Like, is it just about spreading the word? What's, what is it you guys need? Apart from $400,000, yeah. mate, I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Anyone who wants to send some money our way, we'll take it. Um, Great. <laughs> look, I, I think, I think having, um, just having an awareness of, what the barriers are for, for kids living with disadvantage. And, mm-hmm. like, I'll, I'll be totally honest, I completely underestimated that there was this level of poverty on my doorstep. Like, yeah. you know, I, I didn't know there were people, kids struggling this much. And, and when, I, when I moved to Jarjum, um, I had to – I've had – over the last four years of being here, I've had to unlearn so much stuff. Like, I, I, yeah. I came with all these um, – prejudices and biases that I didn't even really know I had. So I think I'd really like for people to be self-aware about, you know, what are are the assumptions you make about kids in disadvantage? um, And that really helps our kids. Mm -hmm. An understanding of barriers to learning. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a hard yeah. question to answer. It's a hard question to answer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I didn't bring you on here for an easy time, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I know. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> apologies, apologies. Um, now, being an English teacher myself, I don't have any um, experience of teaching um, First Nations communities in Australia. I don't have that personal background yeah. at all or expertise. And I know there's a lot of teachers that listen to this that also feel like they don't have that experience, whether they yeah. are um, white Australian, white English, or just have taught in a um, in a location where there aren't um, those kind of opportunities to interact with First Nations communities. So yep. what is it, like, do you have any advice for teachers on approaching First Nations communities, working with them in education, teaching First Nations children, um, anything that could help? Because I, I know that teacher training is kind of lacking in that area here. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. And I, I think one of the really key things there, Katie, is, is learning about First Nations history. So mm. learning about the actual real true history of um, invasion and colonisation in Australia gives you a perspective to help understand why Indigenous kids are facing so much disadvantage. Yeah. Um, so I, I think learning the history is really important. Um, but also ac- access First Nations media. There's some really cool stuff out there. So 
um, NITV is fantastic. Um, there's uh, Reconciliation Australia has some really good resources. So the more often you can engage with First Nations media, the more you learn. And mm-hmm. I, I've learnt a lot just from sort of, you know, obviously I'm immersed in the community here, so it's a you learn fast. Um, but you also have to be deliberate about it. So uh, yeah. I've, I've gone and sought out things that I needed to know and I've, I've started to work out where my or some of my shortcomings are in terms of my knowledge of First Nations history. Like I, yeah. One of the, the big things I learned was I, I didn't realise how much diversity was in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a lot of assumptions about, you know, if a kid's if a kid tells me they're Aboriginal, uh, I made assumptions about what that means in terms of their identity. Yeah. And it's not until you actually talk to a, a kid individually and build a relationship that you realise that, well, they've all got a different position on their identity. Some of our kids feel really engaged with it and understand who they are and where they're from and they're, they're, they want to learn about their culture. Yeah. And then you've got other kids who don't know much about their own culture at all and feel really quite ashamed and disempowered by that. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. It, it is difficult when you, you don't, um, when you're not immersed in it or if you, if you feel like you don't have a lot of contact mm. with, um, with people from a particular community. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it is about um, opening up that conversation as well, isn't it, in between um, professionals, I suppose, um, and getting those kind yeah. of teaching and learning conversations happening that span uh, as many individuals as possible, regardless of background and culture and, um, yeah. you know, knowing, like being mindful that education isn't just for um I guess white middle class children. It no, is that's right. for everyone. Yeah. And being able yeah. to adapt to that. Yeah. And being open to it. And we like we've had to do a lot of training here at, at uh, um in trauma informed practice. Mm-hmm. And learning about trauma has really it, it's helped me it's gonna help me in my career when I'm teaching in other schools or, or doing other things. It it really helps you understand how a child's brain operates. And yeah. because there is so much trauma in the Aboriginal community, I think it's an important skill for teachers to develop. Again, it's, I don't think it's necessarily something you'd learn at uni, but it, in terms of seeking out professional development, it's a really, it's been a really good thing to learn. Um, at my deputy here, Chris, uh, I remember him telling me that learning about trauma-informed practice, he described it as an answer he's always been looking for in, in terms of wow. how kids think and how they learn. Yeah. So I'd I'd really recommend that to any of your listeners that um, learning about trauma and how trauma impacts learning and how it impacts the brain is valuable in any context, but particularly when you're teaching kids with disadvantage. Wow. Really, really good to think about that, definitely. Okay. Um, I'm going to move away from this because I could talk to you all day about Jarjan <laughs> and your experiences and stuff like that, but um, I have got a set list of questions. So maybe we'll do it as a little bit of a um, quick fire round. What do you reckon? Yeah, do it. Yeah, sounds all good. Right. You're the boss. Okay. okay, here we go. All right, what's your gold star moment of the week, something that's really made you smile? Uh, well, one of the things I do at Jarjan, as well as being the principal, I'm the bus driver. So I, I drive the bus and pick up the kids from their home. We've got mm-hmm. two buses and I do one of them. And um, the kids on my bus, I've got a lot of the kindergarten kids. And um, this week we've they found that there's a grasshopper living inside the door of the bus. So I, f- 
uh, when I'm driving around the bus, they're talking constantly about this grasshopper. They love it and it's turned into this big thing. But they <laughs> um, they then go on these funny tangents about what their favourite animal is and which animal would beat which other animal in a fight and yeah. which animal they would like to be and just hearing their little curious brains ticking over like that, it's um, yeah, it's been so fun. Yeah, I, I, I find I'm, I'm laughing all the time when I'm driving the bus. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's big up a bestie. So who has been around in your career that you've really felt has supported your growth as a teacher or has always been there for you to inspire you? Well, there's a there's a few people like the since I've become a principal, the three deputies that I've had, Kate, Tom, and Chris, they they've been really good sort of partners for me in leadership. But like when I was saying before that I I was a pretty crap teacher when I started out, <laughs> I, I I had a friend, oh, he's still one of my best mates, Steve, and um, Steve had been teaching for a few years before I started in my first job, mm. and he made it really feel really normal to talk about teaching and learning outside of school. So he he was sort of this unofficial mentor for me that kind of helped me survive through that first part of my career. And we've actually taught in a couple of schools over over the those years, um, right. a couple of schools together. So And we still play soccer together and stuff. But, yeah, Steve has been um, one of the most important mentors I've had and a really – um, yeah, really good guy, just really cares about – he loves being a teacher as well. So, mm. yeah, I'll shout out Steve. Yes, go Steve. Um, <laughs> what feels illegal but isn't in schools or teaching? Um, do you know what? Standing up to parents. Oh, yes, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I wish uh, – we talked about it a little bit earlier but – I just wish teachers felt like they could be confident standing on their professionalism and their expertise and you always feel like, you know, uh, teachers, the the parents always right, but they're not always right. (laughs) No. So, yeah, so I think it feels like you're doing something wrong when you stand up to a parent, but sometimes you have to. Like I remember, Katie, one day this parent said to me, are you calling my son a liar? Are you saying my son's a liar? And I remember saying, well, Yes, he is. It's, it's like he's ten years old. It's developmentally appropriate for him to lie to get out of yeah. trouble. Like I did when I was ten. You probably did when you were ten. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we have to be confident as teachers to say, you know, we're we're experts in what we do. Everyone, everyone went to school, so everyone feels like they know how to do our jobs. Um, mm. But. You know, there is there is a certain level of expertise that comes with being a teacher and, you know, we should be confident enough to stand on that. Absolutely. What is it, do you think, that um, makes teachers unwilling to stand up to their expertise and, you know, show that they are professionals to some people? Well, I, I reckon some people do have a bit of, like some teachers lack lack confidence with that mm. sort of thing but but also like you don't get a lot of training at uni or nah. necessarily early in your career on how to deal with te- with parents mm. um, and so you you know you get a bit of imposter syndrome and if someone really challenges you, you you it is pretty easy to second guess yourself and you have to i think be conscious of and, and deliberate about really um, reinforcing to yourself you know I know what I'm doing <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one, I think, to get your head around sometimes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Um, okay, what is the best and worst things about being in leadership? Oh, the the best thing um, for me, I've got a big ego, so I like being a boss. Um, <laughs> I, actually, <laughs> I actually like I like decision making. I I've, um, I like thinking strategically. Yeah. Um, so that that part of the that part of being a leader. I really like, but you know, honestly, I really like um, helping young teachers develop. So, and it, it comes back to what I said about my mate Steve, who helped me out when I was a young teacher. Not everyone mm. has a Steve in their life, so um, I, I think as a leader, it's it's really it feels really good to know that you can help a young teacher develop and grow and and want to stay in teaching and and do great things for their students. So that's that's one of the best things about it. Yeah. Um, the I mean the hard the hard thing about being a leader is you do it is hard not to take things home. So at, I found that at Jarjan that we we deal with some some quite emotionally challenging circumstances, and I, I do find that it, it's hard to let it go sometimes. You, yeah. you do carry some of that, like you worry about these kids like they're your own kids sometimes. Yeah. Um, so that that can be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it must be even worse when you know some of these kids' backgrounds and stories and you are providing such a um such an emotionally supportive environment. Like it isn't just a school. It is a family. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that and that family feel that you described when you were here. Mm-hmm. I think that does really um make that it does intensify that feeling that of carrying some of the emotional baggage with you. And, yeah. and that's why it's important to have a, like a supportive team around and to have things that you do to help you cope. So I've got a few healthy and unhealthy coping strategies that I use and, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, that helps me deal with, with that stress. <laughs> Is um, one of them organising three-day retreats to a winery? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> that, I'm not going to lie. That is one of the things. Yeah. 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 There's there's it's, really nice pubs in Redfern, so mm-hmm. that that helps too. That helps too. <laughs> it's all right. We're not going to judge you at all. There's no judgment. Oh, good. Here. <laughs> no. Good. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, we're talking about intense moments. What's been your proudest moment in your teaching career? I I actually employed a young man here a couple of years ago, who I taught back mm. in the day so I taught him as a, a um, he started as a boarder in year seven um, young Aboriginal kid and he was he he wasn't always the best student at school I had him in my class for years and years and years like I I think I had him in at least one of my classes every year so mm. I developed a really good relationship with him and then when he left school I kind of lost contact and then when I started at Jarjum, um I ran into him in the street one day and we got talking and found out he sort of moved through a few different careers and he was um, working as a social worker. Yeah. And I employed him here as a, a casual um, teaching assistant, like helping a lot, of our, a lot of our kids need sort of social work support. And so he was doing a bit of casual work here and he was such a great asset to the school. He was so fantastic with our kids. And I was telling everyone who would listen that I, I taught Benny when he was in year seven and I felt oh. really proud of the fact that, you know, we had this relationship as teacher and student and then we became 
colleagues. And, yeah. yeah, I felt really proud about that. And just seeing how sincerely he interacted with the kids here and how much of a difference he was making in their lives and they really, uh, he'd become like a really strong um, a very spiritual man as well. And, and, yeah, I was really proud of him and that made me feel proud of myself, yeah. Wow, that's a lovely story. <laughs> he's, he's since moved, Katie. He moved up, he moved up to... North Queensland, but we, oh, was, no we did have him here for a couple of years. Yeah, we're still in contact. Oh, um, good. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, he's probably it. the he, only person who still doesn't have a mobile phone. No, oh, right. he's not. <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, he's actually uh, working on a farm at the moment. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, he's really, really interesting, cool guy, but he, he was such an asset to this school. Uh, yeah. I, I hope one day he does go back to working with kids because he's got a, a real natural talent for it. Yeah. Oh, bless. That, that is amazing. Mm. Come on, Benny, come back to the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> he's a um, free spirit. <laughs> a free spirit. Oh, yeah. Well, in which case we don't want to lock him down in education. No, that's right. That's out. right. No. <laughs> <laughs> he, he might find his way back. Oh, let's hope so. Um, <laughs> now, you're a teaching principal as well, aren't you? You, you take some of the classes sometimes. Oh, sometimes, yeah. I, sometimes. I try. Yeah. <laughs> my so my kindergarten ha- skills aren't, aren't as good as <laughs> I would like them to be. I don't know. From from your bus driver story, I think you've got a bit of a gift there with, uh, with oh, kiddie maybe, kids. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are teaching, when you are in that classroom environment, what themes or topics do you most enjoy teaching? Uh, I, do you know what? I, I really like teaching um, the we do a lot of explicit teaching here of sort of personal development skills. Mm. Like we teach about emotional regulation and we teach the kids about how their brains work and um, we teach the kids about how to have healthy relationships. And I actually really like teaching that stuff. Yeah. Um, Which is, it's kind of like when I was teaching in high school, I used to love teaching Shakespeare and I'd love teaching ancient history, but I I don't have that opportunity now where I am. So, um, yeah, but it feels, yeah, I, I really do like teaching those personal skills with kids. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, the things that you enjoy when you first start teaching and where you kind of end up yeah. not enjoying yeah. that so much and enjoying something you never even almost heard of? Like you, you wouldn't have got training in how to teach metacognition, right? And no, no way, no smashing way. Smashing it out, yeah. I, I was Very standing up in front of these kindergarten kids at one point thinking I have no idea what I'm doing here and in, in the back of my head I'm, I was counting the years I was like it was only eight years ago I was only teaching year 12 and now I'm teaching <laughs> kindergarten and like how did that happen yeah <laughs> but you know it's funny you, you can't always predict your career Katie. it goes absolutely. Life takes in different different directions sometimes. absolutely um I would be absolutely terrified to teach year 12s by the way was it terrifying oh, for you it? to step in front of year five, in front of five-year-olds oh totally yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely bricking it yeah didn't um <laughs> I, I, I don't have the skills I um like I went in the other day and did some team teaching with the um with Sophie who's teaching our junior class and yeah. she's an early career teacher doing a great job with that class and she was doing so much better with those kids than I could <laughs> and I've been doing it for 22 <laughs> years and um, so like and I learned a lot from Sophie just over those that half an hour I was in there um, yeah. so that's the thing like I think as long as you're prepared to keep learning and you know not put too much pressure on yourself to be perfect you can always do okay 
Definitely. Well, that's a great segue to the next question. Speaking of not being perfect, can you tell me about a memorable classroom cock-up? <laughs> yeah, I, I recently taught um, a lesson with some of the older kids here about health and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about, you know, how to eat a healthy diet and what the impact of exercise and all that sort of stuff. And I was on my soapbox and really um, – taking the high ground about living a healthy lifestyle. And then about <laughs> two days later, um, I was smashing some chicken at KFC and <laughs> one of those kids walked in and, and I said, oh, I won't tell anyone if you don't. <laughs> and he said, no, bad luck, Matt. I'm telling everyone. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, so. Incredible. I love that. <laughs> so I got busted. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, slightly more seriously, if you did go back into uh, like a mainstream kind of school or even if you wanted to um, have a bit of a voice in changing the national curriculum in general, what do you wish was kind of taught more? What do you wish was more represented in a modern curriculum that better kind of reflects modern children and their needs? Um, I I really think kids would benefit from learning that metacognition stuff, I, I think, mm-hmm. like I've really seen it make a difference here, having yeah. kids understand how their brains work. And I, I've seen some very good teachers run some really good lessons on it. And you can you can see the kids, they change, like they learn to be good learners. And I think there's really great value in that. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would be something that could benefit kids across all schools. Like we, we do it here because some of our kids have really – acute learning needs that we have to specifically address but i i can see how that would work with all sorts of kids Um, yeah Yeah. so maybe i'll throw that one in there yeah i like that that's a good one awesome okay now the last question that i ask every guest that comes on the podcast is a bit of a big one and feel free (laughs) to get back on your soapbox this is exactly what it's for (laughs) okay Okay, if you were in charge for a day, if they rang you up and said, Matt, there's been an absolute shit fight, you've been voted the next Minister of Education, you start now. What is the first thing you would change? Right, so I would try to find a way to integrate the the health and education portfolios a bit more because we, we do that here and i've seen how important it is um so like there's there's so many overlapping factors for a kid's learning that come from the health and education side so like if you've got a kid who their their hearing's damaged or they're they're not feeling well or they've got issues with blood pressure um that the way the teacher sees that is that kid's disengaged or they're misbehaving or they're not interested or they're being disrespectful but a lot of the time there's there's an underlying health thing that is really laying down a barrier for that kid. So mm-hmm. if you are able to access health through schools, I think that would make a big difference. Um, and, like, we, one of the best things we've done here is we've got our own paediatrician. So mm-hmm. the kids see Dr. Vella every, like, she's here every once a fortnight, works with the kids and their families, and... Some of our kids, they wouldn't, if they had to go through public health to see a pediatrician, they'd be on a six-month waiting list and they'd be held up by bureaucracy and, 
you know, having yeah. to fill, the parents having to fill out forms, those things are all barriers to kids in disadvantaged situations. So I think if you can make give families access to health through schools, that, that would make yeah. a difference. So, yeah, that's that's on my soapbox, Katie. I'd, I'd stand <laughs> up there and, and say, um, you know, combine the two portfolios. Yeah. I think that's super interesting because obviously there's been conversations in education for a while around educating the whole child. And I yeah, think teachers right. know what that means, but a lot of, a lot of people that aren't directly in, in education don't really see that connection. Like they talk about the whole child yeah. in terms of community, perhaps family, perhaps their mindset. There's a bit of talk about individual education plans, but that focus on physical health, despite what's in the curriculum, just isn't there in terms of how to kind of leverage that education and development, right? Yeah, That's totally. Really interesting. Like, we, we had a, a kid here who he'd been at a, he started out at another at a mainstream school, and he was always in trouble, always suspended. Um, re- found it really difficult. And yeah. when when we actually finally got him in to see a pediatrician, his his heart rate was sort of twenty thirty beats higher than it was supposed to be for his age. So wow. he had this underlying health thing that was just making him hyper vigilant all the time. And once that got under control, and it, it took you know working with his family on getting the right medication to actually look after his blood pressure and, and get that under control, he just fell into a routine of being this excellent student and wow. his learning just went through the roof. But it, it, it all came down to there was this underlying health thing that on the surface was invisible. Like a, a really rational, reasonable person would look at him and say he's a naughty boy with no discipline. Yeah. But he's, he wasn't just a naughty boy with no discipline. His heart was just racing all the time. So, you know, it's, it's those sort of things that you, you know, you don't know, you don't know it until you, someone, until an expert helps you with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. You're in such a great position there to be able to work with all of those different agencies and those different experts and really come together to create a, um, an efficient whole child approach to education. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, Matt Smith, you've been an absolute dream to interview. Thank you so much for making the time to come on. Uh, thanks, Katie. It's cool. I'm, and I'm glad you've actually been able to come out and see the school because it's a hard place to describe. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that you were able to come in and see it. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. And I do recommend anyone who's uh, in Redfern find themselves at a loose end and interested in how education is done at Jarjum to give Matt a call and go and pop in if you can. Yeah, hit me up. (laughs) So that was the very lovely Matt Smith there. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was real fun to talk to him. It's always fun to talk to him. And seen down the pub occasionally as well. Uh, If you get the chance, I do encourage you to go and have a look at Jajam. And if you're not in New South Wales, go and check out their website at rjc.nsw.edu.au and check out their Instagram as well and you can see what goes on in the school. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the last episode of season one of Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks. So I'll see you then. Bye.